Every Christmas, you see this image as a painting, a meme, a card, or an ornament. A devoted Santa Claus, with his red elf hat removed, kneeling before the Christ child in a manger. Sure, this decoration looks kind of kitschy, but for my part, I have always loved this image. At the same time, many well-meaning Christians cannot help but see Santa as a pretender to Christ's throne rather than a worshiper kneeling before Christ. How do faithful fans respond to this? And what do you think about the Santa Claus versus Jesus Christ clash at Christmas time? Welcome again and season's greetings. You have joined the Fantastical Truth podcast from Lorehaven. Lorehaven exists to find and explore the best Christian-made fantasy, sci-fi, and beyond. And then we have a lot of joy applying these stories and their truths and beauties and wonders to the real world that Jesus Christ has called us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett. I publish lorehaven.com. And lately, as of this fall, I'm the co-author of a book called The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I really hope this year I will not be on the naughty list. And this is episode 44, How Might Santa Claus Serve in Your Christmas Celebration? And stay tuned, because at the end of this episode, we have a very special mention for another object that's going to be in the sky this Christmas, uh, not a sleigh, something else really exciting. So stay tuned for that at the end. But Stephen, let's talk about Santa Claus. I, uh, man, I have so much to share about my childhood memories with Santa Claus. So somehow or another, I got this idea in my head as a kid that Santa was sort of like a leprechaun, that if you could catch him, you would get unlimited presents and all that you could desire. So one year at Christmas at my grandparents' lake house, I was probably six years old, five years old, and my cousin Aaron and I had a plan. We set up a booby trap in the fireplace and with ropes and bells and all kinds of things, and we knew that as soon as Santa Claus came down the chimney and walked through our booby trap, we'd trap him, and it would wake us up, and then we would get him for everything he's worth. (laughs) And then we went to sleep in sleeping bags on the ground by the fireplace. So, yeah, this was, uh, this was my childhood. I went all in with Santa Claus. And by the way, to our listener, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this in every possible way today. So, you know, depending on if you listen with your kids, you may want to listen to it first, just depending on how you incorporate Santa Claus in Christmas. Exactly. So, if you're in on this thing, then we will, there will be spoilers about uh, the ultimate origin of Santa. And we, we will not be agnostic on the question of Santa's existence. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll give that, that big spoiler, you know, the one that some parents would prefer to wait just a little bit longer about uh, the, the whole uh, Santa mythos. Yeah. So uh, the other way that Santa showed up is that I would get these presents that had this really messy handwriting on it. And I'm like, man. I know this isn't my mom. I know this isn't pops or granny. Oh, you, you got the ransom note Santa too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that messy handwriting, that, uh, yeah. that alt, uh, Jack. Yeah, yeah. Santa apparently just needs to cut letters out of magazines and paste them onto construction paper <laughs> to conceal his identity. Yeah. And then I get the, uh, I, I get gifts from different elves and the, the name of the elf would have something to do with the present. And that was always fun because then I would read it and I would have to guess like, what is this? Going to sleep at night, Christmas Eve was impossible as a kid. 
uh, waking up to just this avalanche of gifts was just amazing every year. So I, I totally loved Santa Claus growing up. Now I've gone through a lot of phases since then and we'll get into that, but that's, that's kind of my background, how I come into this. Uh, the Santa phases. Yes. Uh, it's like an internet meme where you, you know, there's like stages of denial and grief and acceptance <laughs> and all of that stuff. I, I also grew up with uh, Santa and folks, yes, we did the whole thing. Santa is real. Wide eyes, hushed voices is totally real, but always with a little bit of a wink and a twinkle. You know, it's like looking back on it, I now realize like, okay, that this was, it was a game. It was a very advanced game. You know, if someone is playing a, a tabletop fantasy RPG or something, you know, most occasions, you know that this is real. But I mean, what if you had people who were totally sold out to it? Okay, that may seem kind of creepy. So please don't, if listener, don't think that this sounds creepy. It was absolutely not. I just I know that there's some Christians who they, they get a little creeped out, you know, with uh, with the idea of pretending this is real. But this this was, in my view, the best kind of game of pretend. And that Zach, you mentioned the avalanche of gifts. I remember that as well. This, to me, in retrospect, was a fantastic symbol of the lavish generosity of God. And Absolutely. To, to me, anyway, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, no matter how you land on whether you do Santa with your kids, if you have kids, I mean, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later in this episode. But I, I will uh, I will tip my hand and say uh, that at least for me, with my personality and the way that I grew up, uh, flaws and all, uh, Santa, the, the, the legend of Santa, the avalanche of gifts, all of that was a servant to Christ at Christmas, uh, not a competitor uh, to Christ. Your mileage may vary. Your kids may certainly vary. We have to be really careful moving forward, not, not to place our own experiences over top of anyone else, because every family, every Christian has different struggles that way. Yeah. And now in my family with our kids, we don't do Santa. So we have a lot of other traditions we do. And I'll tell you how we got there as we go through this episode. I look forward to that. I must say that none of my many siblings and I ever tried to catch Santa Claus. This wasn't out of any altruism or pragmatism. Why would you kill the goose that lays the golden eggs? <laughs> it was simply a matter of respect. Uh, Santa was this mythological presence. He, he comes overnight. You don't see him, even though you absolutely have to be in bed and asleep, darn it, uh, in order for Santa to do his thing. Because otherwise, you know, you will never be able to wake up your parents in the morning and actually go down and see all the gifts. I remember the jagged handwriting, you know, parts of the cookies are always gone. The whole tradition, I think, yeah, the best sign of Santa's presence, I think, may have been after I was a teenager and was in on this whole thing. Santa left a very prominently placed bell kind of stuck to the side of the fireplace. And uh, this, I mean, this was amazing. Now you had a relic uh, from Santa, mm. you know, a, a piece of wood from the crown of thorns, as it were. <laughs> And it was fun, though. You know, I, I do not remember uh, any unhealthy attachment to this. It was just it was just fun. So I say that, uh, you know, I think both of us, Zach, would say that, that we list our experiences uh, not to try to persuade anyone necessarily. I, I think there are better ways of doing that. But just to throw our experiences into the ring, the world of the church, the world of Christianity is not just full of people upset about Santa or, or uh, very, very concerned uh, that a uh, honor or a regard for the Santa tradition could overthrow uh, the wonder of the incarnation. Uh, those experiences are valid also, but, but then so are these experiences. You know, if we grew up with it and even thought it was real for a time, that doesn't always ruin you. 
there's maybe other reasons why kids struggle after that, uh, but we'll get into those a little, little bit later. Ultimately, Zach, I, I, I wrote down at least three Christian responses to Santa. Mm-hmm. Um, all happen to start with the letter A. Uh, and the, these are broad categories, and people obviously can lapse in and out of those. Uh, but before we get started uh, with some of our, our reader feedback for this episode, the first one I've seen is kind of agnosticism. Uh, Christian parents may just kind of laugh about Santa, like, oh, yeah, the gifts are from Santa. And everybody knows they're just kidding. That's, that's silly. Uh, we all know the reality. Uh, the second one I've seen is, is, well, the antagonism. And this comes up a lot in internet discussions, of course. Santa is a rival of Jesus. I mean, his name is an anagram of Satan and everything. And some of that can kind of overlap with the criticism that Christmas is actually a pagan holiday and we'd best not get involved with all that sort of thing. Uh, but you see this occasionally. I would say that it is a minority view among at least evangelical Christians. Uh, they just tend to be a little bit louder, uh, but we won't be proceeding as if that's the majority view and we're bravely taking a stand for Santa. I, I think most people are either agnostic about Santa or they go for this third approach, which I would call adventurism. Santa is real. He comes at Christmas and he delivers these toys. It's true. All of it. And I guess that's the approach <laughs> that Zach and I just described here. Yeah, basically, um, I think my, my backstory is, uh, is option number three. And yeah, I believed it for quite a while and didn't feel betrayed that I can remember when I, when I happened to discover the truth. But here's the big spoiler. And, and do know that we are going to spoil this. It's, it, it, it's all made up, folks. Santa is not real. He's a collection of popular cultural mythology, uh, drawings from the Coca-Cola company, uh, lots of uh, ideas from Clement C. Moore's famous poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. And then even those going back to some European traditions celebrating folklore and Christmas and Yuletide and Kris Kringle and uh, Father Christmas and St. Nicholas. So it's a, it's a long and glorious tradition, uh, but it is a tradition. And like other traditions and holiday traditions, especially even going back to the uh, debates over the Jewish holidays and what Christians do with them in the early church, uh, these can be controversial among well-meaning Christians of goodwill. Yeah, I probably would add it like a stage zero maybe to that, which is amazement if we're going with the alliteration. Oh, uh, there we uh, go. Yeah, for the yeah. kids, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that that's where I spent you know most of my childhood and uh yeah and then i remember the moment Stephen, when i figured it out it was all it had to do with the reindeer that was the uh that was the fatal flaw was this idea that reindeer could fly and i remember because that coming back from my grandparents lake house we would see all these deer and then i was at school one day i think this was second grade or so and I was playing on this uh, on this uh, pyramid thing on the playground, and I thought, "Wait a minute! I've seen deer. They don't fly." What? <laughs> you clever child, you. Yes. Nothing gets past this one. But you know what? I was terrified to say anything about it. I was really afraid to admit the truth because I I didn't know what the consequences would be. So I kind of shut my mouth. And you know, I was the older child. I had a younger sister, so I you know I didn't want to tip the boat for her either. And so then I, I kind of moved into that agnosticism stage, uh, kind of midway through elementary school of just like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to play along. Like I still believe this, but man, what is going on? <laughs> well, at least, uh, you, you know, you got out of the Santa cult in elementary school. I, I'm not, I shall not say further, but let's just say I was a little bit past elementary school before I finally figured this out. 
And, and yet this idea of revealing your skepticism caused you such fear and, and angst and <laughs> that will not do. I mean, that it's a legitimate criticism to say like, why would you do that to a kid at a time that's you know, supposed to be all about the incarnation and the joy of Christ's gift of himself to humankind? Why get all this secular stuff mixed up with it, leading to politics and worse? And, uh, I've been writing about Santa for a while, uh, thanks to the, uh, the blog that, uh, basically created uh, Lorehaven. It was the original project from which Lorehaven has sprung. And all along, I've heard some careful challenges uh, from folks. Uh, nine years ago, uh, I wrote an article called Redeeming Santa Legends for Delighting in Grace and got a great comment on there from uh, Bethany J. As she wrote, quote, I'm not a fan of Santa myself, but my big issue with him isn't the make-believe, which is fine, or even the competition he supposedly makes for the true purpose of Christmas. My issue with him is that it often goes beyond make-believe and becomes just a flat-out lie. I don't have a problem with Christians including Santa in their Christmas traditions, but should Christian parents really tell their kids that Santa is real when he's not? End quote. Oh, that, that is really good. Uh, there's another good quote here from Joanna who says, quote, Many years ago, we stopped playing the Santa game because I had a child who insisted Santa was real but not Jesus. She was too confused by all the hype. So we switched to treating Santa like any other cartoon character and made sure the kids all knew mom was the real gifter of toys. For us, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' coming to earth along with celebrating the joy of being together. We're not anti-Santa either. I try and teach my kids about St. Nicholas and many of the other wintertime characters, end quote. I like that reference to wintertime characters. And I know plenty of families who kind of split the difference there. Like Santa is a character. That's what, what mm. I would, I would put that under the agnosticism, but we don't hate him. We just, we just know he's not real. You know, it's something funny to laugh about, but everybody knows that we're not actually talking seriously about someone we believe is real by contrast. And we'll actually engage a little bit with this article. Uh, it's kind of one of my favorites eh, from author and pastor John Piper. Uh, let's just say it's actually, it's actually not, I don't think it's actually one of his better articles. I understand Piper fans. I'm one of you. I love John Piper's work, uh, but occasionally as I've actually mentioned Zach in our, our politics episode, I, I'm not sure if I named him then, but yes, I was talking about John Piper. Uh, he'll occasionally seem to falter with the application of, uh, his view of, you know, prizing the, the joy of God above all things. Like that is the main gift that we get. And, and occasionally, though, we'll seem to not sure how to apply that when it comes to gifts in the real world, particularly with relation to human culture and popular culture. Uh, in this uh, article called Rethinking Santa, I believe it's actually a transcription of a, of a, a podcast they did. Uh, he says in part, quote, it is mind boggling to me that any Christian would even contemplate such a trade that we would divert attention away from the incarnation of the God of the universe into this world to save us and our children. Not only is Santa Claus not true, and Jesus is very truth himself, but compared to Jesus, Santa is simply pitiful, and our kids should be helped to see this. Santa Claus offers only earthly things, nothing lasting, nothing eternal. End quote. We will, of course, have that link in the show notes. Is actually one of the few art, uh, articles or uh, you know longer uh, works, not just comments, uh, from folks who are seeking to Think about these things as authors and pastors and have a lot of good challenges for us, especially if we're tempted to be a little too casual 
about things like Santa and, you know, could drift into secular or even consumerist thinking about that. Let's get real quick to our concession stand. Santa didn't bring these sweet concessions, but we have some early stocking stuffers for you real quick before we head into our main discussion. This, uh, this is a topic that we've actually talked about a lot at Fantastical Truth. Not Santa per se, but just the idea of imagination and these earthly gifts like stories and creation. So if you just got here to this podcast because uh, the title was really catchy or something like that, you want to think about Santa Claus as a Christian, uh, this episode does build on others. Uh, we have a growing body of work at Lorehaven. We did even some podcast episodes recently about magic and how Christians think about that. And of course, at the back is always this idea that imagination is God's gift and that we do redeem this, even in a groaning world that has been corrupted by sin and our own idolatry. Still, in Christ, we can redeem these good gifts of God, created good originally, through discipline, through the pursuit of holiness and Christlikeness. And as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, this gift, I believe, is among those that we can redeem through the Word and through prayer. So, Bible reading and prayer, uh, participation in the local church, studying God, theology, all of that is necessary to understand topics like this one. And you can see those show notes again uh, for links to our previous articles and podcast episodes either about magic or even some of the articles we've written uh, specifically about Santa Claus. And finally, we are not going to spend this whole episode accusing people of legalism. If you don't do Santa or tell your kids he's real or you know, provoke that avalanche of gifts every Christmas morning, then, then you must be a legalist. I think if we did that, Zach, we would be legalistic and that will not do. As I said earlier, your mileage may vary. Everyone's kids are different. Uh, back here, uh, you read that note from Joanna who said she had to stop playing the Santa game because their child was insisting Santa was real, but not Jesus. That will <laughs> not do at all at that point. Okay. Their tradition is, uh, is not being shaped, uh, either in the mind of a child or in the mind of someone who has some other issues that's not being shaped by a biblical worldview. So yes, you must put it away at that point, no matter how good it is. Uh, if someone isn't getting it, then yes, you need to put it away for, for the sake of valuing joy in Christ above all else. Yeah, I looked at that John Piper article, and that was from uh, 2013, but man, that really could have come, I, I'm sure he wrote something like that 10 or 15 years before that, because I, that sounds like a lot of stuff I read while I was in college. So let's explore now two flawed responses to Santa. And actually, we're going to follow a kind of roughly a, a method that we did in the, in the pop culture parent book where before we talk about it, hopefully a more biblical response to popular culture, we go through two different uh, flawed methods that parents uh, can, or anyone else who has kids can drift into. Uh, the first one is, is what we call hands-off parenting, and the other is what we call endless childproofing. Now, the first one, it basically, yeah, you would just uh, kind of stand back and just let popular culture do its thing. And then in the second one, possibly as a response to the first one, uh, parents or anyone else is uh, setting up all the rules, leaving all the locks on the cabinets, uh, putting away all the hazardous chemicals, and most importantly, with, with no plan to teach your kids how to use these things well. So we're going to go through this and, and just apply these uh, to specifically Santa, and then we will posit what we think is a little bit more of a gospel-centered approach before helping Santa serve your celebration of Christmas. So for this first one, hands-off parenting, where is Santa in relation to Jesus? Well, if you can imagine that famous uh, painting or that famous image of Santa kneeling at the manger, which, spoiler alert again, that's where we're going to end up here. In this version, I think you can imagine 
uh, the figure of Santa Claus standing beside the manger. Uh, you've put up your nativity scene in your yard or on your mantle, and you've got this glorious Santa Claus just standing tall right beside the manger. I think this is the idolatry element that we kind of deep down in our imaginations will fear that will happen, uh, that we have the nativity scene, but Santa gets equal value. He is not kneeling at the manger. He is standing beside the manger. Maybe you even have the little manger indoors on the mantelpiece, but on, on the front lawn, you have a big six-foot animated Santa, and he's glowing brighter uh, than any of the manger scenes. And this, this might represent how some people, especially even some Christians, unfortunately, uh, could adopt the Santa mythology wholesale, uh, not giving attention or not being uh, cautious about the potential idols that that could bring, particularly in the heart of a child who doesn't quite understand the gospel. Uh, you could even drift into consumerism or the idolatry of enjoying gifts for their own sake. I think that is a hazard. It's a big hazard at Christmas. It's a hazard with any other work of popular culture or fantasy or any good gifts. I think that, too, is why the Apostle Paul is very cautious, you know, appropriately so in his epistles when he's talking about, you know, how the early church is supposed to uh, celebrate or ignore, I mean, the different ideas. Uh, particularly Jewish holidays. I mean, Christmas is not an official holiday in the church calendar, and many people get very upset about that. But I think the basic idea of we're going to take this day and set it apart, and we're going to celebrate this and that, and someone else goes, well, I, I don't want to do that. I don't see any point. You know, every day is created by God. You know, why, why should we treat one as more special than the other? This issue also applies to any other, any other gift of God. And I think one of the biggest risks here, and I will go here, is actually the criticism that I think John Piper rightly gives. If we're singing along with the song that Piper quotes, I think we do end up reinforcing moralism rather than a more all good gifts come from God orientation. Uh, John Piper in that same article, Rethinking Santa, I think he rightly notes, quote, Santa Claus offers his ephemeral goodies only on the condition of good works. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. That is a pure works religion. And Jesus offers himself all the gifts freely by grace for faith. End quote. I think that that is an appropriate warning, especially when, for example, parents are trying to get their kids to behave and they'll say things like, well, Santa is watching. I think you can say that in a teasing way. Again, don't want to be legalistic here, but uh, it would be flawed at best to say, behave, Jesus is watching. Like it's probably effective. And yes, it's true. Jesus is watching, but where is that line between training a child in the appropriateness of minding boundaries and obeying your parents, and then also beginning to impart the idea that the law won't save you. Only Jesus can like Zach, you've been here with younger kids. You know, uh, my wife and I have teenagers in the house right now as a foster type situation. So it's a little bit different, but with little kids, I can't imagine uh, some of those struggles. And I can't imagine that that view of Santa could make things any easier. Yeah. Well, we, we found this meme uh, earlier this year. It's this giant uh, inflatable Santa Claus that someone had in front of their yard, but it, except it was turned around and it was facing the house and it was like a two-story house. And so the head of Santa Claus was 
eye level with the second story window of someone's bedroom. And so the caption on the meme was, he knows when you are sleeping. <laughs> and dun, it's like, yeah, dun, that that is dun. the creepy view of Santa Claus a lot of people have had. You know, I'm actually okay with the idea of this omniscient, you know, surveillance state Santa. <laughs> it's the elf on the shelf that is coming straight from the pit of hell. I don't like that guy. <laughs> Uh, his letters can be rearranged to spell something sinister. Uh, he's he's crazy and he needs to go down. <laughs> yeah, I've seen the uh, elf on the shelf in quarantine. And so, you know, as soon as the elf arrives, he's got to go in quarantine for 14 days. And man, you know, I'll bet a lot of people are just, they're not even really thinking about Santa this year. They're thinking like, can I even have Christmas? Can Survival. I travel anywhere? Is yes. my governor or mayor going to allow me to meet anyone you know right hey, why don't we have why don't we have any memes yet about now you know the governor of california sees you when you're meeting with others he knows when you're taking a walk by yourself without a mask <laughs> yeah so this is the uh you know this was kind of that awakening i had i guess from second grade on is i started thinking i don't think he's real but like I, i'm afraid to say anything and i'm really afraid that I'm going to end up on the naughty list. Like this was a very palpable fear I had as a kid. Now I wasn't a crazy kid. I was a pretty good kid. You know, I, I tried to obey things, but I basically just tried to stay out of trouble. And, and that was actually uh, later when I was 16, that was a big part of how I came to know Christ is when they walked us through, this is a young life camp. They walked us through the Romans road and then Romans three, like there's no one good. No, not one. And I got really offended. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a good kid. Like I always, I do the right thing. I don't do all these crazy things like other kids I know. And, but it really came down to, well, I'm, I'm doing good things to get what I want. You know, like if you've read, um, the prodigal God by Tim Keller, he talks about the older brother and the younger brother, and they're both just trying to get stuff from the father. The younger brother is just outright, give me all my stuff. Now I'm going to take it and waste it however I want. But the older brother is a little more subtle about it. He's like, haven't I obeyed you all these years? Why don't you give me what I want? And and that was kind of my attitude towards God, towards Santa Claus was like, I'm going to, I'm going to be good to get all the gifts that I want. And so I lived in this fear of not being good enough. And I, I was really afraid I'd get coal in my stocking growing up. And so, you know, I, I just tried to play nice and try to appease the, uh, the whims of this demigod Santa. <laughs> And yeah, and, and that sort of created this crisis of faith at some point. Not not quite like the, well, I think Santa Claus is real, but is Jesus real? But just like, how can they coexist? Like, how can both of these live in the same universe and have this much power? That is such an important point to make about how the naughty list, nice list mythology can blend in with false religion, with works religion. And I'll have more to say about that in a moment, but it suffice it to say, I don't think you have to have Santa along with the naughty list, nice list thing. I think you can have Santa without the other stuff. I would dare say I would throw out the naughty list, nice list, colon the stocking thing and definitely would disregard uh, parental threats. Uh, those, I mean, I don't want to be a legalist again. You know, if you've done this with your kids, I'm, I'm not yelling at you. I mean, who am I to do so anyway? At the same time, I think that that does veer little bit too far in the territory of manipulation. Uh, if someone's joking about it and the kids know they're joking, like, okay, that's, that's fine. Um, I think my parents probably said that. And I think I knew they were joking. You know, we yeah. all knew the truth. I was going to get toys for Christmas anyway. It was, it was, 
it was okay in my case, but again, you know, your family, your kids may vary. Yeah. I don't think my mom or my grandparents or anyone ever said that to me directly. Like I never actually got coal in my stocking. Like I, I had awesome Christmases growing up. It, it was just like the, the mythology that kind of builds up around it. You know, you sing these songs like the one we just quoted and you start to think about it. And, you know, I was a worrier as a kid. And so I just worried all the time that, you know, what if this, the bad part of the song comes true and just kind of lived in fear of that. I mean, I lived in anticipation, like whenever they'd show Santa Claus on the, you know, NORAD radar, the, on Christmas Eve, that was always exciting. But, but then again, I was like, wait, what if he, what if he forgets me? And, you know, just a lot of insecurities as a kid. Well, not to dump coal into parents' stockings this holiday season either. As wise parents and a little bit leveled up with adult children, for example, may know kids get these ideas regardless of what the parents say. You know, you, the parent, cannot shelter your child from legalism or moralism. I mean, that, that would be just a little bit too meta right there. Kids, even adults, are going to pick this up one way or another. So it is definitely no implication of the parent if the kid goes around thinking that Santa's actually going to bring a heaping helping of judgment this holiday season at when the parents said nothing of the sort and have never given this slight indication of that. Children will adopt these ideas, that particularly if their child has a disposition that's just a little bit more anxious or a little bit more hyper-imaginative. That's going to happen, and all you can do then is respond in gospel grace. Or, as we have in our, our second big point here, uh, you can respond with, with the endless child-proofing approach. In this case, instead of having a Santa Claus standing beside the manger, possibly glowing more brightly than the Christ child, or kneeling at the manger, which we'll get to in the next point. In this one, uh, the manger is actually crushing Santa. <laughs> you have the Christ child <laughs> in the manger and, and the little leg of the, of the wooden manger, because of course it's, it's wooden, is actually on Santa's head, you know, as, as if stomping <laughs> on, the, uh, on the serpent there. And I think, Zach, people who maybe grew up with Santa as this moralistic enforcer are completely within their rights. At, at least I can understand and empathize if they're like, no, I don't want to have anything to do with that. This is not a symbol of joy to me. This is not a symbol of gift giving. Uh, this is a symbol of something very like cruelty. So I don't want that. Uh, that feels pagan to me. I would much rather celebrate Christ. In that case, I mean, you're, you're my Christian brother. You're my Christian sister. And not only that, but I, I wish I could, I mean, I would share my experience, which wasn't like that. But Know, please see it that way, or at least it's it's different for other people. Mm -hmm. But I can totally see where you're coming from, and and yet you know even for that, I mean, it, it's not just bad experiences, but some people are just concerned about the pagan associations, and they do want to keep Christ and Christmas, and you know all others uh, are kept at the door. So Santa may not even get anywhere near the manger, you know, whether or not it crushes his head. As I mentioned earlier, some Christians will unfortunately buy into superstitions. Uh, we don't want to have anything to do with paganism and uh, Christmas in the early church uh, is entwined with Saturnalia and some of that stuff. As for what came first, I think it's basically been proven historically that celebrations of Christ came first and then the, the pagans came along and were appropriating that rather than the reverse. Uh, there is the joke, but some people aren't joking when they say that the letters in Santa can be rearranged to spell Satan. Oh yeah, that was an SNL skit in the yes. 90s, right? The church lady. <laughs> yes. Well, that that was based on some reality. I've had people I've heard people seriously say that. I, I think they're wow. an increasing minority. I wouldn't say that that's a majority view among Christians. Most people say that and they laugh, they understand it's silly. It's a it's a trick. 
of the of the English language. There is no uh, semantic uh, ancestry between Satan and Santa. You know, they come from two completely different strains of language. And of course, some people are just uncertain about the whole idea of magic. You know, magic reindeer, magic gifts, magic elves, and what what does it have to do with anything? It's ridiculous. Unfortunately, uh, all of all of church history has been kind of entangled with. You know, the, the, the Roman stuff, you know, even going back to the New Testament, you see the apostles co-opting uh, this, uh, this pagan language, like even in Philippians 4.13, with the list of virtues that we're supposed to think about, whatever's true, whatever's noble. There's a case to be made there that the apostle Paul is actually borrowing from secular philosophy in order to list all, all those virtues and yet put them under the service of Christ. There are thorny things to disentangle when it comes to, you know, how the early church or the modern church interacts with the world around them. And it's just the fact that we're going to have to deal with those things. Yeah, I think this is kind of the view of Santa as usurper, you know, whereas in the, the first category is kind of Santa is like co-equal God or something or demigod. This is like Santa as a, like you said, an idol, a false god. And man, I, I definitely went through the kind of anti-Santa cage stage uh, in college and thereafter uh, where I was just like, Santa is a symbol of consumerism and just everything is wrong with moralism and therapeutic deism. There, there's this very particular memory I have, Stephen. It was um, a year or two after college, I went on a trip and I visited China and I went into this restaurant there and I saw a Santa Claus or like a little cardboard cutout thing. And I'm like, why would they have Santa Claus? It's summertime. Like what, what's the deal there? And then I look around and there's like the, um, the golden Buddha statue. And then like the little, uh, the cat with like the, the paw up. And I thought, ah, okay. Santa is just one of many gods that they worship in this restaurant and for good luck or, or whatever. And that, I think that kind of set me on that path of like, well, that's what it is then. Santa is just the the idol of Americans and like, we got to get rid of this idol, smash the idols. And, you know, there's a place for that, I think, at, at a point in someone's life, but that can also kind of consume you and it can kind of drive you crazy uh, because then you start, you know, then you see Santa everywhere and it's like, he's in every movie, he's in every Christmas card or star, well, probably not a Starbucks cup because let's be honest, <laughs> about Starbucks here, but, uh, no, I'm not going to get into that, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it becomes sort of this obsession of eliminating Santa from everyone. I like how you said he, the manger crushes his head. Like, you know, Jesus is going to crush the heel of, or crush the head of Satan that that can kind of take you too far. It can be especially empathetic, I think, because Santa is so prevalent and it, it becomes so kitschy. And so you start looking at him like the stereotypical minion meme on social media, you know, that your Aunt Marge is sharing a minion meme with, I hate Mondays, or, you know, Garfield, uh, Garfield uh, cartoon kitsch, or just any of those other things, like suddenly you just start hating it. Now, even some people have that issue with uh, uh, the uh, the child formerly known as Baby Yoda uh, from The Mandalorian. Like, <laughs> I've actually, I don't want to watch that. I'm so sick of seeing Baby Yoda everywhere. And like, well, you, but you don't know the story. Like, he, He's, he's kind of the MacGuffin, you know, he's not the only star of the show. The star of the show is, oh, right there in the title, The Mandalorian. Good gifts should not, like, at least in, I think, a holistic biblical worldview, we have to make sure that those who are abusing and idolizing good gifts are not ruining them for the rest of us. 
And unfortunately, even in uh, John Piper's article, I think he crosses into the territory of assuming that a thing that others have used as an idol has therefore been ruined. Hmm. And that that little going along with that, it's it doesn't make sense biblically uh, for long. And you can kind of see that when you compare other articles or think pieces, which, for example, like there was a, a, a honestly a plague of them a while ago about marriage. People were saying, and I think people from, you know, who have issues with the church back home or what they think is Christian culture, people were saying, oh, Christians have made marriage into an idol. And, you know, so therefore, wouldn't it just be better to be single and help dig wells in Africa and things like that? Well, there is a place for celibacy and, you know, particular kinds of single ministry work in scripture. And we would never, never dispute that. But it is irrational and ultimately unbiblical to act that somehow marriage has been corrupted, even if Christians have been idolizing marriage or true love or things like that. Uh, some people will idolize the family or the idea of family or the idea of two parents. But it is not biblical then to disparage those or the very idea of families or marriage as inferior to Jesus. What can mom and dad give you? They're just earthly. You know, they're going to grow up and get old and die. But Jesus is forever. That is nonsense. Jesus has not only instituted the family in Genesis 2, specifically presented this to humanity as a good gift. And it is idols, idols, idolatry that ruins things like family and parents and marriage. Uh, that doesn't make them evil. I would apply this also to things like Santa. I understand that people have a healthy fear of idols, but we cannot then twist this into a fear of how God has built the world, including the idea that humans are very creative and sometimes we make up silly stuff and incorporate that into our holiday traditions, including Santa Claus. When Naomi and I started a family and we started having kids, you know, this, this came up, like, are we going to do Santa? And th this caused a bit of a kerfuffle when we're like, we're not going to do Santa. And, <laughs> and so my relatives were like, well, don't tell granny because <laughs> my grandmother was very into Santa. And so it's like, are, are you really not going to give your kids gifts? You know? And it's like, no, we're, we're still doing gifts. Like we're just, we're just not saying it's from Santa. And yeah, th this can definitely set up some conflict if you take this view of like Santa's usurper. But I think there's also a lot of misunderstanding that happens here. It's like, like I said, for me, it was this fear of Santa's not going to visit me. And again, it was just my own fear that I grew up with just from my own insecurity. And I, and I was just like, you know, I don't want my kids to have that fear. I want them to always be secure in my love for them and just them getting Christmas gifts. Like I, I don't want them to ever worry about that. Th there can be misunderstanding between Christians of like, you know, well, you're doing Santa because you're an idol worshiper or you're not doing Santa because you're a legalist. Like, yeah, I, I think there has to be a lot of grace here because a lot of assumptions can get made. And I think it's just a very personal thing so this kind of leads us into our third section here, which I, I think is a little bit more balanced approach. Well, I hope so. Uh, the first one, I think you could you could summarize it with the view that Santa is sacred. Treat him as real. Don't mess with him. And, and then it causes some family politics. If you know one set of parents, uh, maybe with a particularly challenging child, decides not to do it like, well, OK, well, what are you doing? Santa is sacred. Like I, I would say that that's a flawed view. And of course, the second one is Santa is Satan or satanic. Uh, the third one, I would say that actually Santa can be seen as a servant. 
like the famous paintings and or ornaments, uh, any of those decorations would show Santa is kneeling at the manger and you can present him to yourself and to your kids, should you choose, as being a servant of Christ and a servant who is helping to celebrate the incarnation of Christ and the goodness of that amazing gift through the good use and understanding of earthly gifts, whether or not you have an avalanche of them or just a few under your Christmas tree or manger scene or give them unwrapped. I don't know what your tradition is. I think that is a good response to the, uh, the two previous methods, which set up uh, equal and opposing idols that are based on fear and control and not gospel grace. Piper in his article, like I, you know, maybe someday he'll engage with this and that would be great, but he's right to expose the Santa as an idol problem. Uh, he ignores the possibility that we could view Santa as a servant. Uh, here he writes, quote, not only is Santa Claus not true and Jesus is very truth himself, but compared to Jesus, Santa is simply pitiful and our kids should be helped to see this, end quote. And I actually responded to this uh, in a, a previous article uh, that I wrote, uh, kind of engaging more fully with, with Piper's article, I hope with respect. I mean, he's got a lot more miles on me, but I think I have some experience with this that he may not have or he may not have heard about. And I, I replied, uh, quote, uh, this warning is needed for any Christian parents who have a low or unbiblical view of the amazing hero, Jesus Christ, who is absolutely the central figure of Christmas. But shall we apply this same warning for all Christians, presuming they are so immature that they cannot handle other heroes, real or imaginary, lest they distract from Christ? What if we said, well, compared to Jesus, Charles Spurgeon is simply pitiful. Compared to Jesus, Aslan of the Chronicles of Narnia is simply pitiful. Compared to Jesus, John Piper is simply pitiful. Compared to Jesus, Bilbo Baggins of The Hobbit is simply pitiful. And what about other good gifts of Jesus? Compared with him, food is pitiful. Married romance and sex is pitiful. Children are pitiful. Church politics are pitiful. Yes, all these are true, but do we only ever issue dour warnings about these gifts? This is an overly self-abasing worm theology way to live as if under constant suspicion that mature Christians are still totally depraved and cannot enjoy gifts lest they distract from Jesus. Yes, these can distract from Jesus, but the best way to prevent this is to see gifts as his gifts, end quote. That's a good, that's a good point, Stephen. It's strange that, uh, I mean, Piper and lots of his allies, they, they love C.S. Lewis, and, and yet, at least here, uh, Piper doesn't seem to remember the way that Lewis treats Father Christmas, uh, which is, I think, one of my favorite treatments of Santa, Father Christmas, mm -hmm. Kris Kringle, uh, whatever name you give him, uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I, I go into this a little bit more in the article that we will link in the show notes. Well, that, well, that was a big thing that I didn't understand about Narnia, because I saw Narnia before I read it, or at least I... Oh, of course. I, I guess I read it as a as a really young kid and I, I didn't really remember it when I saw the movie and when father Christmas shows up, I was like, are they just doing this because they're releasing it at Christmas time? Is this like an appeal to, you know, the Santa culture or whatever? And, and then I, then I read the book as you know, recently and I thought, Oh, okay. So this is always part of the story. And I, I really like that now. And, and that's, that's Naomi's favorite part where he says lot where father Christmas says long live Aslan. And so it's like, okay, so he's, he's a servant of Aslan. He's exactly. not a uh, competitor. Exactly. Just like the, the nymphs and the dryads and the even gods and goddesses, lowercase g, all in Narnia, 
all are servants of Aslan, the river god, and Prince Caspian uh, is chained in place. And he says, hail Aslan, and please break my chains. And then once Aslan liberates him, uh, this mythological creature is doing Aslan's bidding. Aslan comes along, everything is subservient to him, and this is right and good. And if you're going to mess with the, or you know, incorporate these pagan ideas, these, uh, you know, these non-Christian imaginations, then they need to be under the paw of Aslan. And even more importantly, I think, is to note, and we will link this in the show notes as well, is that Lewis had a very dim view of consumerist Christmas celebrations, even in hmm. Britain, you know, in the mid of, of the 20th century. Uh, some of his essays about Xmas cards and the, the ridiculousness of people who feel like they have to get a gift for everyone and running themselves ragged and failing to celebrate the incarnation, like he almost sounds Scrooge-like in some of his huh. writing about the, the secular festival known as Xmas, which somehow manages to coincide uh, with this thing called Christmas. Christmas, Lewis loved. Xmas, not so much. And so just knowing that Lewis was such a curmudgeon about this, I think rightfully so in a lot of ways, uh, makes his treatment of Father Christmas stand out even more. And that's basically my view of, uh, of Santa, is Lewis's version of Father Christmas. He is not just a mere mythological dispenser of moralistic toy-based justice. Uh, Santa as a part of Christmas, whether you not you, you as a parent to present him as real, that's another controversy, can show kids and yourself a picture of joy in Christ. Not the fleeting uh, joys associated with presents, you know, and then they throw out the, throw out the gift and play with the wrapping and you know, all those cliches. Uh, it's up to you if you want to treat Santa as real and there are issues of parental deception there, you know, maybe kids who say, well, I grew up, my, my parents told me Santa was real. And then I found out he was a lie. And I also found out Jesus was a lie. You, the parents may have been flawed there, but my guess is there were other issues there. You know, Santa alone does not finish off uh, the faith of a person who would otherwise cling to Jesus the rest of their lives. I love that. As you said, Zach, uh, Father Christmas shouts, long live Aslan. That's, I think it's a little bit different in the book. Uh, we may include the quote there in the show notes if I can get it. It's like, Merry Christmas, long live the true king, I think is what uh, Father wow. Christmas shouts in the, yeah. in, the, in the book. Either way, though, the movie portrayed him well. And, and the actor, uh, James Cosmo, I think is his name, is just a perfect Lewis's Father Christmas. He is clearly a servant. He's a servant of Aslan, and my favorite element there is that he, how earnest he is and how serious he is. He's not giving Peter and Susan and Lucy and the Beavers uh, just, uh, you know, consumerism. He's not reinforcing consumerism. He is very serious about it when he says, these are tools, not toys. He gives Peter a sword and a shield. He gives Susan a bow and her magic horn. He gives Lucy a dagger and her special healing cordial. Uh, these are all items that show up, uh, not only in the rest of this story, but uh, in uh, successive stories. And I love it that these come from Father Christmas. Uh, they don't, don't just get them forged somewhere. You know, a symbol of merrymaking of the holiday shows up and equips them for the mission that they have as the chosen future rulers of Narnia. And I think, parents, you may decide to do the same thing with your kids. Like, what do they need for the mission that they have? Zach, some of my favorite gifts weren't just toys as a little kid, but even as I got a little bit older, they were books and literal tools and clothes and things that I needed 
I mean, yes, alongside other, you know, toys and collectibles and things, but some of my favorite Christmases, like I knew it wasn't Santa. I knew it was my parents, but then suddenly, you know, the box set of the Lord of the Rings shows up in 2001. I wish it had showed up earlier, but Hey, I was a little bit late to the middle earth bandwagon. Nonetheless, I needed those books just in time to go see the fellowship of the ring film. Santa gave me that set and lots of other stuff that was recreational and brought me joy, but could also be said to be a tool and not a toy. Well, I like this approach of finding how Christmas can foster joy rather than just be kind of led about by fear, you know, whether it's like fear of disappointing your kids and the fear of having a terrible Christmas or fear of leading them astray into this idolatry. I, I think this third approach is really about how to capture the joy of the incarnation through how we celebrate Christmas. Uh, I, I think that's a really healthy approach. And uh, my friend William Umstadt uh, wrote this really great poem and this um, uh, some comments on Facebook. So you can go look at that. But I'm just going to read some of his comments, uh, Stephen. I thought this was a really good perspective. He says, quote, Giving gifts is a great analogy representing the gift Jesus was and is to the world. Jesus gave the gift of eternal life, so we give gifts to each other on Christmas as a reenactment of what Jesus did for us. We do this in December because winter is sad, depressing, and cold. We were sad and depressed in our sin, but then Jesus came and turned our sadness into happiness. Christmas and gift giving is the same, but for winter instead of sin. As a four-year-old, this concept is difficult to understand. What's easy to understand is the excitement of getting a gift, end quote. So this is so true about a four-year-old, you know, understanding gifts, not really understanding the incarnation or substitutionary atonement. So my, my son is four. He's totally into Paw Patrol and trains and everything. And he's got, you know, the next Paw Patrol thing on his list, which we talked about last time about toys. And, you know, like everyone, we're ordering things online and having them shipped here. And so every couple days, something will show up. And recently, this gigantic box from Target showed up. And, uh, so my son was like, Oh, I bet that's the Paw Patrol thing. <laughs> like he, you know, he gets it. He's like, I know that it's my parents. I know that it's going to be wrapped. And it's going to be a surprise, but like, it's still fun. And like, it's, it's no less fun. Uh, even though we, we don't say it's from Santa, but you know, there's also something that we try to do with Christmas, Stephen. We, um, will put out gifts kind of one by one, uh, little by little throughout December. And then we just put numbers on them. And so our kids have to guess like, well, what is this? And who is it for? And what, you know, who's going to be number three, who's going to be number seven. And, you know, so that is to preserve that kind of sense of anticipation and also trying to teach them delayed gratification. You know, that is like one of the most important life skills, even as an adult, it's, that's an important character skill. But then on Christmas Eve, what we do is we put up newspaper uh, covering the hallway. And then our kids' rooms are on the other side. And so they have to then run through the newspaper. And then, then they get to see even more gifts that they didn't know were going to be coming. And so, again, it's like we're, we're trying to preserve that joy and that anticipation of Christmas and those gifts being sort of a symbol of what people for centuries look forward to in a Messiah. And then now the joy that we have that he's come into the world. That sounds like a wonderful tradition. And it implicitly echoes what God does in the Bible. Like for centuries, for millennia before Christ came, God is spending all of this time training his people over generations to create these mental categories for the idea 
you sin, something has to die. You sin, something has to die. You sin, something has to die. Generations and generations and generations. And then the anticipation is built up for this great gift of Christ, the ultimate sacrifice. You send someone, God himself, had to die, and now it is finished. But it took all that time for God's people to get it. And even then, of course, some did not get it. You know, they confused the ends for the means. How much more than in microcosm does an individual, a child, need to grow up in the best case scenario, having had those mental categories or those imaginative categories created? If you don't understand God as a father, you know, maybe it's because, you know, you had some earthly father issues growing up. If you don't understand God as lavishly generous, you know, maybe you had some issues with stinginess growing up. You know, it doesn't mean that if you have the problem, then it's your parents' fault at all, but it can certainly help improve the chances that someone will develop into a person who understands God's gifts and understands Christ and why he came as a baby if you grew up with those earthly means of creating those categories in your mind and in your heart. Yeah, well, and I know from my grandparents that Santa was very much this symbol of just kind of a humble gift giver, you know, that that sneaks into the house, that puts the gifts, doesn't ask for credit, you know, doesn't really need anything besides uh, a glass of milk and a cookie. And this is very much who they were. Like I said, for Granny, you know, Christmas was huge for her. This was such her favorite thing ever. And, but I, you know, it very much come out of, came out of her generous heart. It wasn't like this, you know, it, it's not this, like she's trying to trick us or get us to worship some idol. Like a lot of people are afraid. It was just very much out of this heart of joy. Or I think it really reflects how Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. It does. Like when you, when you give. So, you know, whenever we get these gifts, like, oh, this is from Santa or this is from the elf or whatever, or this is from Mrs. Claus. You know, she's just over there in the corner, just smiling as we open it uh, because it, it's not about her getting credit. It wasn't about, you know, us trying to earn her favor or something. It was just, she just loved to watch the surprise and joy in our faces. And so I think for a lot of people, that's what Santa Claus is. It goes back to the original St. Nicholas of just this really generous person that wanted to surprise people that thought they were going to have a pretty lousy Christmas. And so I think Santa can be great. I I don't see any problem with it done in that way. Amen. Whether he's a symbol or whether he's a, a laughing reference that everybody knows is not actually real, or even if you want to go full adventurist and say Santa is real, oh, here's his handwritten note to you, child. Uh, he will respond to your letters somehow. And oh, this bite, you know, here's his bite marks. Here's his DNA on this <laughs> cookie. And here's the, here's the half-eaten carrot uh, somehow uh, fed to the reindeer. They're somehow on the roof, even if you live in an apartment complex, like this is all real. All right. Other parents may have issues with that, but you know, let's all try to be gracious to one another. And that is the whole idea of the holiday after all is generosity toward sinners who did not deserve it. This can be represented through toys or tools. All these earthly means are not a competition to Christ in Christ and in the hands of someone who does their homework, does their heart work. Uh, these things can become amazing gifts that point to Christ, not away from him. Well, amen to all that, Stephen. And as I said in the beginning, we have a uh, breaking story here, Stranger Than Fantastical Fiction. So we mentioned there is something else in the atmosphere that is surprising people around this December. 
and it is another UFO. And so uh, there are two stories that have come out recently of fighter pilots and uh, one a year ago and one two years ago, I believe, that uh, captured with their iPhone from the cockpit at 30,000 feet in the air a UFO, actually two different UFOs. And one of these photos has leaked, and then the other photo is still classified or something. There, there's apparently these uh, pretty major intelligence reports about this, so this is kind of interesting. Um, but the really funny thing is that the uh, the photo of the the UFO it, it doesn't actually look like much. It and uh, supposedly it was a cube that was just hovering in the air. But the funny thing is when you zoom in on it, it looks sort of like a mylar balloon that you'd see it a birthday party and wouldn't you know it there is a batman balloon that looks exactly like this well, it kind of has this shield type shape with kind of this jagged you know uh, bat's wings edges at the end like I, exactly that would be my going theory uh correct <laughs> i mean could it could a mylar balloon make it up that far but zach you you had some pushback about the the bat balloon theory yeah i mean it may just be like the artifacts like the jpeg compression as you you know zoom in on something and so it may not actually look like that kind of shield shape but of course, everyone's talking about it because it's funny and it's like, but then it's sort of like terrifying in another way. It's like, really? Our Navy pilots couldn't distinguish a balloon? Like they thought it was a, an alien or something like that? That's kind of weird. So wh- I think we should probably dedicate a whole episode to talk about this because that and the other story, which I, I won't spoil now, are really fascinating. You know, there's a lot of implications of that that I think are interesting to consider. So I I think we'll have to talk about that in an upcoming episode. We definitely should. Uh, I, of course, will be not just playing the role of skeptic, but will actually be a skeptic. At the same time, I can indulge in imaginative speculation and suggest that the design of the craft suggests the Sycorax from the uh, 10th Doctor's uh, introductory Christmas special, The Christmas Invasion. Those jagged edges (laughs) are pretty distinctive. But if you said it was a cube, then we're back over to the Star Trek fandom where, of course, Borg. year 2020 for the win, it isn't the Vulcans who show up first. <laughs> it is uh, the collective. Yeah. And I was just watching Star Trek First Contact the other day, so I'm, I'm totally primed for that to happen any day now. But now let's go to our fantastic fans. Uh, we had a lot of great discussion after and even before the last episode about turmoil in the toy box. This proved to be a surprisingly nostalgic topic, although not always in the best sort of ways uh, for people. I actually posted a few days before we released the episode and a lot of people went, oh, yeah, I remember that book. I mean, some (laughs) remember it by name. The cover is very distinctive, as we mentioned in the episode 43, uh, but uh, not always fond recollections. Some people were reacting more like, oh, that was the name of this devil all along. You know, you'll hear some of that sentiment (laughs) in some of the comments that we get. Andy S., for example, replied, is this book why I wasn't allowed to watch G.I. Joe? And there are a few other comments to that effect. You know, some some of the more rougher elements of growing up evangelical in the 1980s. Let's just admit that this, uh, this was a bit of a rough time for somebody. Some another reader wrote, quote, oh, my stars, my mom read this book and scared us into throwing away all of our Barbie dolls and cabbage patch and everything like that. We as a family all laugh about it now. My poor mom included so glad for growth and wisdom, end quote. And I appreciate her spirit there. If you can laugh about those things rather than, uh, you know, need therapy for them, all the better. Some people, unfortunately, do need therapy and it does just illustrate the risks 
of going in for some mysticism and some less biblical approaches to popular culture does have consequences. So please discern these things biblically. And then uh, Zach, uh, got, you can read the rest of those there. But uh, I have a friend named Mike Morell. Uh, actually, well, I don't know if he, <laughs> I don't know if he counts. It's more of a, it's, okay, it's a Facebook friend, but we clash a lot uh, because uh, uh, we disagree on a lot of things. Uh, but here we can agree uh, where he says, quote, that book was the bane of my childhood, resulting in the burning of many of my beloved toys and comic books, end quote. That is sad. That is wrong. Uh, that is not uh, godly behavior. I understand the desire to burn unholy things, but if you've not proven biblically that a thing is unholy and is actively somehow so corrupted by sin that you have to burn it, irrespective of whether or not you are being tempted personally by that thing any more than usual, uh, that is a, that is an unhelpful approach. And I think it is contradictory to the gospel that Jesus came as a child and then grew up as an adult to act out, to sacrifice himself and resurrect, to bring us that gospel of repentance and salvation. Well, and just a quick comment. I mean, burning is just so specific. That's it's like, very well, drastic. And people are trying to imitate the example of the new believers in Acts who burned their right, books of 19, magic. 19, yeah. Exactly. But but that that was a specific scenario in which they were using these books to practice occult stuff. The text doesn't go into detail. This was the example of them converting. They wanted to get rid of that stuff. And Zach, you've done something similar with the, you know, some of the books that you knew that were drawing you away from the gospel. Like this was right, because they were nonfiction. They were exactly they were a conscious thing that adults were doing as a act of as a volunteer act. We don't read in scripture. I haven't seen anywhere where parents or anyone else is taking someone else's stuff irrespective of their oh, own yeah. heart and then burning it on their behalf. Now, that's that I think that can be abusive. I think that can be abusive. Well, unless, you know, it's not like they had a trash service back then too. So I, I can understand throwing something away, but burning it, it's just like, man, that is like real, that's commitment, you know, but it's also kind of like, uh, it, it's this weird inversion of like people gave burnt offerings to the Lord in the temple. So now Inversion, we're going to yes, exactly. burn idols. I, I don't know. I, I just think that's odd. Uh, we got another good comment here from author Randall Allen Dunn, who wrote the red writer. He says, quote, I remember that book being out. The fears of Barbie influence went on for years, along with criticism of wonder woman until Gal Gadot came along. It's laughable now, but things like this were taken very seriously at that time in the Christian community End quote. Okay. So a couple comments there. My sister loves Barbie. She's collected Barbies and she's just very fascinated by Barbie and just the whole, you know, sequence of Barbies that have come out. But at the same time, she knows, you know, Barbie uh, kind of reinforces some certain stereotypes about women. Okay. And so it's, it's sort of like this mishmash people have of like Barbie represents, you know, uh, over-sexualized womanhood and also is a demonic uh, vehicle or something. It's like, yeah, there's this weird approach I think that can happen if, if you kind of go out there with these assumptions. But, um, yeah, it is funny how now we've got wonder woman now kind of being fully embraced, I guess, by a lot of Christians. So, well, that's, uh, that's to the credit of her director, uh, to Patty Jenkins, who, you know, ha has that as what I would call a feminine touch, uh, who, who, who prevents her from being as, as sexualized as she has been in, in some of the comic art. So well done. 
Wonder Woman 1984, Christmas Day 2020 for the win at home or in theaters. Amazing. <laughs> and last we heard from Tisha M who said, I couldn't watch Smurfs because of that book. Oh, well, you know, honestly, you didn't probably miss a whole lot. Tisha, I watched Smurfs and I'm like, why did I watch Smurfs? It's kind of silly show. There was better shows on back then, but uh, you know, sorry to, to hear that though. Well, we just, uh, we just blew off the Smurfs fandom there. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Smurfettes <laughs> sorry, or, or whatever the, the fandom name is called. Uh, we, we, we do respect and embrace all fandoms, uh, except the, the overtly sinful ones. Yeah. Next on Fantastical Truth. What if you were a pisky girl born without wings, raised underground, and desperate to learn to fly so you can venture into the strange world beyond? That is the start of author R.J. Anderson's fantasy series, The Flight and Flame Trilogy. Her book, Two Nomad, just released from Enclave Publishing in November, and RJ herself plans to join us in our next episode to explore this magical and miniature realm. Meanwhile, if you can, in Christ and for his glory, do not treat Santa like a sacred saint above criticism, but don't treat him as satanic either, above redemption. Instead, should you wish to, for your sake, for your kids' sake, and above all, for the worship of Christ as you celebrate Christmas, treat Santa as a servant of this celebration, a giver of good gifts that by themselves are worth nothing if not for their reflection of the most amazing gift that Christ has given us himself as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>